would you help to welcome Andre Collins? Hello. Uh, Andre, how many years you play in the NFL? I played 10 seasons in the NFL. And who did you play with? Mostly for the Redskins, five seasons for the Redskins. Right. Uh, three very low seasons uh, for the Cincinnati Bengals, yes. where I prayed every day for God to please get me back to the NFL. Yes. And then a couple of years for the Chicago Bears at the end. Uh, when we talked about this yesterday, I couldn't help but think about the 139th Psalm. Because in the 139th Psalm, it says that God will be with me when I rise to the heavens. And he'll be with me when I go down to the depths. And I was thinking about you. <laughs> God was with you when you played for the world's greatest team, the Washington Redskins. But God was still with you when you were with the Bengals. He was still with you in that low pace. Can you imagine? He got me through the desert. He did. Do you think that God would have been with you if you had to play for Satan himself as a Dallas Cowboy? Funny story. I had a chance for an 11th season and the Cowboys called and I said, absolutely not. Everybody, I want you to take notice. This is a true man of character. Okay? Man of principle, a man of God. You understand that? Okay. All right. Uh, last week we talked about only God can satisfy. Isaiah 55. Only God can satisfy. I want us to talk about that a little bit. First we're going to watch a clip. Then I want to ask a question. This is Tom Brady. So let's, let's roll the clip and see what Tom Brady has to say. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is not only one of the NFL's best players, he's one of the NFL's great stories. At the tender age of 30, he has already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. And he's having one of the greatest seasons in pro football history. When we first reported on him back in 2005, he seemed underrated and almost overlooked. He doesn't have the arm of Peyton Manning, and he doesn't have tattoos, and he doesn't take steroids, and he's never held out for more money. All he knows how to do is win. That's <laughs> what you always wanted. You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Andre, you won a Super Bowl. I did, 1991 with the Redskins. How can something that is sought in such an incredible way, so coveted, that people want so badly, how can that not lead to fulfillment and satisfaction? Well, I think what Tom is saying, and so many of us in our, in our jobs and what we do every day, is we... We try and define ourselves um, 
athletes trying to find themselves by their sport, how well they play their sport. We define ourselves by our jobs and what we do every day. And in football, in pro football especially, you work so hard every day. You're, every practice is filmed, every play is filmed. You're judged on everything that you do. So for a proving ground, for knowing where you stand, it's right there in front of you every day. So when you master your craft and you reach the Super Bowl and you win, you're, just, you're expecting this, this tremendous crown. And the Super Bowl ring, I haven't worn mine in 10 years. And it's so shiny and it's so big. And the Super Bowl trophy is, is so shiny. And when you walk into Redskin Park, there are the three Super Bowl trophies right there, just, just shining in your face every day. And on Super Bowl Sunday, when you win, you hold it up. And, you know, it's supposed to mean so much. But um, God doesn't want us uh, to do that in our lives. It's more about um, your relationship with the Lord and being able to serve in the right way. And what are you doing in that relationship um, to please God? Mm -hmm. And when you... For me, I was in that same place where Tom was um, back, back then in that interview. But when you learn and you move along, you just know that you know, your quest for salvation and the chance to be able to see Jesus, that, that should be the ultimate glow in your life. And when that's there, there's no other relationship uh, that's more important in your life. And to be able to live that way, and I pray that Tom finds that one day. It is, it is fulfilling. And when, as a football player, you think, God, there's, there's nothing that's ever going to give me that feeling of being in front of 80,000 people and, and making a play and, and winning a game. But for me in my life and, you know, my spiritual walk, and I've had some great spiritual mentors along the way, um, you, you, can, you can find the energy in the Lord. So it's just, it's been a beautiful thing. Thank you very much. Give me, give me a hand. What the Bible says and what we talked about last week is money can't do it and fame can't do it and success can't do it. God says really clearly only God can satisfy. And uh, I just think this is a powerful confirmation of what the Bible says. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for Andre and for the words that he shared here this morning. I thank you, God, for what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do in his life. Lord, help us all to really, in this city that demands so much from us, help us in this city to put our focus on you, not on our careers, not on a relationship, not on anything else that ultimately leads to emptiness and dissatisfaction, but help us, Lord, to put you first, that we might find true and everlasting satisfaction. In Christ's name, amen. Would you all help me to thank Andre for speaking? I'd like to read to you from Mark chapter 1 uh, this morning from my burgundy and gold Bible uh, that I chose to read with today for this special day. Uh, we started a new series called Radical Shift. Today, the title of the message is A Radical New Purpose. Last week was A Radical New Beginning. Today is A Radical New Purpose. So let's pick it up in verse number 9 of chapter 1. It says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth, in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn 
open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left with their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. There is a fill-in-the-blank on the back, which is the one major application piece that's on the back of your bulletin that I'd like to consider writing down this morning. That is this. this. These verses are all about this. It's about centering our lives on Jesus Christ. So if you would write that in, um, I think this is what God would have us to remember this morning. We need to center our lives on Jesus Christ. Now, uh, you might be thinking, you know, what, what exactly does that mean for me to center my life on Jesus Christ? Well, we see in this story, you have here uh, these people, uh, Simon, his brother Andrew, James, and his brother John, and these two kind of separate scenes that happen kind of crunched right here together. And they're out, and they're fishing, and Jesus sees them, and he says first to Simon and Andrew, he says, come follow me. And we're told that they immediately get up and follow him. Here's what you need to know. This wasn't the first time they saw Jesus. This isn't like Jesus kind of rolled up on the Sea of Galilee and said, hey, guys, you never met me before, but come and follow me. They had some context. They'd seen him around. He'd been around the block with them a few times. So uh, here's the thing. You've got to know that in, as you read through Mark, you see this. There's a gradual coming to full belief and a full centering on Jesus Christ. You might be here. This might be your first time. Um, you're like, hey, man, you want me to center my life on Jesus Christ? Who is this Jesus and what proofs can you give me? And what I want to say is, is all through the book of Mark, we're given all these proofs. Like today we're going to talk about why. Why we should center our lives on Jesus Christ. Then we're going to talk about how. But in the midst of it, there's going to be all these proofs. We're going to look at some of them today. I just want you to know that. Jesus didn't just walk up to Simon and Andrew. And boom, they just believed right out of the chute. There was some context to that. But what he's saying is, he said, leave your nets behind. Leave your career behind. We're in a city that focuses a lot on career, aren't we? And we can get wrapped. Does anybody know anybody in Washington, D.C. that's like really wrapped up in their career? Like they go to bed with their iPhones or they go to bed with their smartphone, Blackberries, whatever. Like they're taught constantly connected because career is number one. And what Jesus is saying is this. Center your lives on God. Center your lives on me. Don't center it on your career because if you do, if you center it on your career, you're going to end up empty because that's not the way. And then he walks a little bit farther and he finds James and John, brothers. And this time we're told that they are also fishing, but in addition to that, their father is there with them. What is, what is, what is being said in this? In their culture, family was king. Your identity was in your family. And Jesus says, your identity and the center of your life should not be upon your career, and neither should it be upon your family. Your career is great. God's not against your career, and God is not against your family. But what God is saying is, if you want to make the most of life and the most of satisfaction out of your career and family, I have to be the center of your life. Put your identity and your center in me. What does that look like? How does a person live who God is at the center of their life? Well, they ask questions. 
They ask different questions than maybe what we're used to asking. Like a lot of times they'll say, you know, what's best for me? What do I want to do with my life? What do I want to do with my day? What do I think is right for me to do in this particular situation? I'm confronted with something. I'd like to go in this direction because that feels right, right? So what do I want to do? Well, a person whose life is centered on God says things like this. God, what do you want to do with my, what do you want to do with my life? God, how do you think I should live my day? I have a decision to make. God, what is the right decision in your opinion? Because that's the decision I'm going to follow. I'm not going to take it as advice. I'm going to listen to it and I'm going to follow because my life is centered upon you. There's a difference in focus there. The focus goes from self to God. God, what do you think? How should I react? Throughout the book of Mark, you see lots of questions and questions all that. Jesus, who are you? And what does it mean to follow you? I want to... Um, I want to use this whiteboard here if I can real quick without messing up this speaker. Sometimes I step in front of it and it makes funny sounds, but it looks like I've escaped that for today. So uh, why in the world would God ask us to center our lives on him? Think about this. I've heard people say this before. I've thought it before myself too. You know, read through the scriptures. We seek first the kingdom of God. Make God number one. You know, give glory to God, praise God. And the thought might run through your mind. It's run through my mind before. Does God like need, is he, is he like needy of me? Is he needy of me to give him praise and glory? That's not what this is all about. Back in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, when everything was nothing but peace and harmony, everyone, when everything was right between God, that relationship with God, between Turn it so some of you guys on this side can see over there too. That's beautiful. Okay, so when the relationship was right between God, when the relationship was right between Adam and Eve, when the relationship was not only right that way, but also right with nature, including animals in the earth, when everything was in absolute harmony, this is what it looked like. God was at the center. He was at the center when there was peace and harmony. And this is where God wants us to be. This is his goal for us. Now what happened? God said to them, you know, stay away from the tree in the middle. And they said, well, okay, God, that's what you want. But what do I want? Adam and Eve said one day. And so they replaced God at the center. And instead, we end up not with one circle, but now we definitely have two circles, right? We've got Adam over here and we've got Eve over here because they're definitely not in the same circle, right? There's nothing but conflict that goes on. But you see that right out of the bat, right, right, right from the start. So God says, hey, Adam, did you eat the tree? And what did Adam say? That woman that you made for me, it's completely her fault. And then she blames the serpent. So now not only do we have conflict uh, with the husband and wife, but now we're bringing the animals into it too. So we got conflict all over. We have nothing but conflict and disharmony going on. So why should God be the center? Because God being the center is the path back to peace and harmony. That's why. Because when... When God is at the center, then we have a chance. Look, so many of our stories end with what words? And they lived happily ever after. Why? Why would we say that? Why would we write these stories about living? Did nobody live happily ever after? We die, right? Without God, all right? So God doesn't exist, right? God doesn't exist, right? We just die. And some of us die brutal, awful, terrible deaths. So why are we obsessed with this happily ever after thing. You know why we're obsessed with it? Because there's a mental trace in our minds. We know paradise exists. And it's been tracing down for thousands of years, all the way from Adam and Eve. Our parents who knew that paradise existed. Now, Romans chapter 8 says this. It says that even creation, all of creation, the earth, nature, animals, are groaning, waiting for the day for paradise to return. 
Check that out. Like even the animals who are on Animal Kingdom, Planet, whatever, Discovery Channel are attacking and killing each other. Even they know there is a problem. Even the earth knows that paradise actually exists and that one day we can return to that. And the only way we can return to that is with God being at the center. What I'd like to focus on this morning is this, because we're going to talk a lot about the how, but we're not going to do that today. We're going to talk about the why. I, I need for myself, if Jesus is telling me to be the center, I need some evidence. Like, I need some proof. If God wants me to put my weight on that, okay, Jesus, you're the center, well, can you, can you give me something that's going to say, okay, I can believe that, some credibility there. I, the best way I can put it is when I was a teenager, I was down and I used to work down in the district when I was a teenager. And I remember it was late one night. I was walking through. You know, you know those grates they have with the big holes in the ground? They're all over the place down there. In ball, they're all over the place. I remember I stepped on one one night and like the grate came up. Like, and if I would have kept going, we would have had a problem. But I caught it just time. Well, I had a mental trace of that that stuck with me since that day for many, many years. So like when I'm walking down the street, like I was in Boston this past week, and we have a lot of those in Boston, I'm walking down the street. I never, if I'm by my, I never just walk across those grates unless I see somebody else doing it first. So uh, just because it stuck with me. Okay? So I was walking down the street. I was walking with another guy, and we got up to a grate, and I kind of slowed my pace so he would go first and step on it first. I didn't really like the guy much, so if he went down, it was cool. Don't step on that. No, just go ahead. See what happens. Um, But I want to make sure before I step on it, it's there. So I want to talk about three things that we see from the Scriptures. There's many more, but I'll just give you three from these things, credible proofs of why we should center our lives on Jesus Christ. So here's the first one. Because the Bible is history, everybody. The Bible's filled with historical fact. Now, we've been talking about this, and in no way am I trying to say anything out of an arrogant way against other religions, but we need to draw the uniqueness of the Bible. We need to take a look at the uniqueness of Christianity, which we started last week, and we're going to do again today here. The uniqueness of the Bible. The Bible is a historical book. The Bible is a book filled with historical facts about real people. Many religious writings that are out there, if not all religious writings, are about some person's vision or revelation that they have about God, which then they share with everybody, then we're supposed to follow that vision or that revelation or its advice about life or something. True, the Bible has vision and revelation in it, but it's a historical book with real people, real places and real events. It's, the, it's about God's interaction with people throughout history. And that, what, that's what makes the Bible so incredibly unique. We know from history, outside of the Bible, that Jesus Christ lived. He created quite a stir in Israel and in a culture that venerates saints or venerates people in their tombs. We don't have a tomb that's venerated there. We know that's historically true. John the Baptist, an historical person, not found just in the Bible, but found in history. He existed. He lived. Peter and Paul, these guys lived in history. We know that. They were martyred by the emperor Nero, Roman emperor. We know that. That's not in the Bible that they were martyred. We know that from history. The the cities that we read about in the Bible, the battles that took place in the Bible, places, events, on and on it goes. This is a historical book filled with historical facts. The Bible begins with a scientific fact that for many, many years, many people thought it was completely untrue. All the way from Aristotle to Einstein, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. 
Aristotle to Einstein that no way. The, the, the universe is eternal. We know that. We're scientists. It's eternal. The Bible's good. Jesus is good. But this universe had no beginning. And the Bible clearly says that it did. And then one day, science advanced itself enough to catch up to what the Bible had been saying for thousands and thousands of years. And we know it's a scientific fact today. The, the earth, this universe, had a beginning scientific fact. I want to show you a graph that I have uh, here just so we can think about the Bible. Do we have that? Let me move this even more. Okay. So here's some books of history. Here's some books of history. And the important things to th that I want to point out to you, the first one up top is Homer's Iliad. We have three slides of this, but it says that the time gap between you know, when it was written and when we, have a, when we have a copy of it is 400 years. It's all the way second column from the end, and we have 643 copies of that. So flip to the next slide, and you see that the next biggest is 200 copies, right? And 1,400 years. Then the final slide, which shows the New Testament. Just think about these numbers. We have more than 5,000 copies of the New Testament. When we read a book of history, well, we just like, oh, that's true. It's in the history books. But about the Bible, I don't know, man. I'm not sure about that. What's the credibility there on the Bible? We have an overwhelming amount. And look at the time gap on that. 50 years for some copies, 100 years. 225 years is the largest time gap span when we thoroughly believe many portions of history and the gap in the writing is like 1,000 years. This this evidence is overwhelming. It, you have to at least stand up and say, whoa. And the Bible is filled with this story. So let's move, on to the, let's move on to the next one. Bible, the first one is the Bible is history. The second one is this. Because the story is both brilliant and it's consistent. Brilliant. You know the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors? 1,500 years, 40 different authors. Have you ever been in a room with 40 people? You ever been like in a business meeting with 40 different people in the room or something or some kind of gathering where you're trying to move people in a certain direction? There's 40 different people there. Isn't there at least one nut who's like flying off the handle like, let's go this way, you know, just, what are we talking about? You mean to tell me over 1,500 years and 40 different authors, every single one of them is clear and consistent, right on track? How is that possible? Wouldn't somebody have had, well, you know what, I got an original idea, and I want to go with this today. Let's, uh, let's talk about the fact that God is not interested in the, uh, the redemption of humanity. Let's just move it. They don't do that. It's so consistent. It's so clear. Let's, let's talk about this from Mark chapter 1. We see it. I want to read you Genesis 1, 1 to 3, and compare that to Mark chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the waters and god said let's review that so you got the father you got father god there right he's there at the beginning of all things okay and then it says that he speaks we're told in john chapter one that in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and the word became flesh and nothing was created without the word right and the word is jesus christ so what you have in Genesis is you have the Father, you have the spoken word, which is Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, which we're told is hovering, and then you have the water. And water in Jewish tradition represents death, darkness, and chaos. Now, what do you have in the Gospel of Mark, in, in the New Beginning book? What do you have? You have Jesus Christ. 
And he's there in the water, again, water. And the Father is there, and the Holy Spirit is hovering. We just read that a few moments ago. And after that happens, that total, that consistency, the connection, right? Jesus, we're told in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, also in Romans chapter 5, that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. We had the first Adam, and now we have the second Adam. And what we see here is the second Adam goes through the exact same steps that the first Adam goes through himself. The consistency, the connection that there is absolutely brilliant. So what happens to Jesus Christ after he's baptized? He gets out of the water, and it says immediately he's driven deeper into the wilderness, deeper into the desert. Goes deep into the desert where he's what? What happens deep in the desert? Where he's tempted by the devil, and he's with the wild animals. Well, who is with the wild animals that we read? that we read about in Genesis. Adam. The first Adam was also with the wild animals and tempted. So the first Adam was tempted in a garden. And the temptation that he had from Satan was, go ahead and eat this tree. God says what to, God says what to Adam? He says, Adam, just stay away from the tree. In the garden. Stay away from the tree. So what happens? Does Jesus ever end up in a garden himself? Does Jesus throughout his life ever end up in a garden? He ends up in a garden at the end of the gospel of Mark. And he's like, Father, do I have to really obey you about the tree? And this time, instead of failing the obedience about the tree, he has victory and he goes to the cross. Now, when I was in Israel uh, back about 10, 15 years ago, what I didn't realize, you know, my idea of the cross had always been, well, it's this nice piece of manufactured wood, right, in the ground and then across the shoulders and Jesus carries this nice piece of manufactured wood and they nail him to, that's not what happened. They nailed people to trees. They'd have, you know, the cross beam across their shoulders that Jesus had to carry, but when they got to the cross, the cross was a tree along the side of a road and he was nailed to the tree. Isn't it amazing? That God says to Adam, obey me about the tree. He doesn't do it. It ends up in chaos for all of us, in disharmony. And God says to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, obey me about the tree. He obeys about the tree. And now we have the path back to peace and harmony made for all of us. I just think that consistency is absolutely brilliant. And you see it all over the place in the Bible. Third and final point is this. Why? Why should I center my life on Jesus Christ? Because God claims you, loves you, and chooses you to be his own. He claims you, he loves you, and chooses you to be his own. So what the Father says to Jesus when he's baptized, so Jesus comes up out of the water, and from the reading that we have here, it says Jesus saw, he saw, and it's very singular. He saw this. So everybody else around doesn't hear the Father speak what he does. And the Father speaks these words, you are my son, and only Jesus is hearing this, right? Later he shares with Peter, who shares with Mark, and now we have this story, and I'm going to tell you why. I believe we have this story in just a moment. But he says, you're my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. He's claiming. He's claiming. I claim you as my son. I remember when my son was born uh, down at GW Hospital um, 18 years ago, we went down to the nursery to claim our son, and there was about 15 kids in that nursery, and there was only one kid who was screaming his head off. And they said, the parents of Jonathan Sly, are the parents of Jonathan Sly here? And I turned and I looked down the hallway and said, are the parents of Jonathan Sly here? 
is this the way it's going to be? Or do I want to claim this kid who can't get enough of screaming his head off? Do I want to do this? When a father abandons a child, when a father abandons a child or spends little time with a child, the wound goes extremely deep. Now, we could go over statistic after statistic about this. This is very deep. That pain is horrific. Wounds last for years. Problems with seeking approval from other people, going to things to try to seek approval, addictions, depression, obsession, hurt, on and on. Emptiness about life. That wound goes very, very deep when a father abandons a child. Last week, uh, I spoke just a few moments about Steve Jobs. I want to just tell you one other story from his life because he was abandoned by his father. Uh, his parents, mother's name, biological mother's name was Joanne Scheibel. His father's name was Abdul Fattah Jandali. He's from Syria. She was pregnant when both of them, father and mother, were 23 years of age, which is very interesting. Uh, Jobs never wanted to search for his parents, though he thought about it for many years until his adopted mother, till she passed away. And then he began to search in the early 80s. And he found his mother, Joanne Scheibel, and they had this wonderful reunion. And she said, you have a sister. Her name is Mona, and she's a writer, and she lives in New York City. And so Jobs goes and pays a visit to Mona in New York City. And they're talking, and she says, I really want to find our dad. Where is it? So they, she goes on a search, but... Jobs is so wounded. Think about this guy. This, he never got over the wounds of this. He was so wounded that his father had abandoned him. He says, okay, you search for him. But I want nothing. Don't ever, don't tell him I exist. Don't tell him you know me. Don't tell him I don't ever want to see him, meet him, nothing. And that was the case all the way for the rest of his life because she found him. She found John Dolly in a restaurant in California. He had kind of meandered his way from Wisconsin to California. And she finds him there, and they sit down, they talk for a couple hours in the restaurant, and it's a fascinating conversation. And it, he says to her, you know you have a brother, and she acts like she doesn't know anything about it. Oh, yeah, well, who is that? And he says, I have no idea who it is. That, that boy's gone. We'll never see him again, but you had a brother. And then the conversation at the, you know, a little bit later on, here's fascinating, all right? He says to her, to his daughter, I wish you would have seen me when I was running a restaurant in Northern California. It was a wonderful, posh, upscale restaurant. It was beautiful. All kinds of rich and famous people came in. We were in the technology corridor where all this new technology is happening, and all these technology superstars would come in, even Steve Jobs. Is that amazing? She didn't let on. She said, oh, really? She went back and told Steve. He says, I don't care. I don't ever want to meet him. The wound. Is deep. Now, how would Steve Jobs respond in his own life with that? He'd been abandoned. He'd been hurt deeply. He, he would not want to do that himself, would he? When he was 23, the same age as his father, he got his longtime girlfriend pregnant, Chris Ann Brennan. He denied that child. He told people, that is not my child. They had to sue him, take him to court. Many, many years later, had to sue him, take him to court. He did a test that overwhelming proof biologically, but he, to his own board members on Apple, he's like telling me, what would you think that would do to his daughter, Lisa? Because the abandoned, abandoned. His daughter, Lisa, lived on Steve Jobs' daughter. We're talking the guy that created the most powerful corporation on the face of the earth today. Lived on welfare and dilapidated house 
in California because of the abandoned abandoned. That hurt goes very, very deep. And what God is saying here today in baptism, I claim you. You're my son. You're my daughter. Next thing, whom I love. What is love in the Bible? Well, the Bible tells this. Love never fails. So when the Father says, I claim you, he goes on to say, by saying, I love you. Say, you know what? I claim you, and I'll never turn my back on that claim. Like, you can trust in my claim. I'm not walking away from it. And finally, he says, and with you, I'm well pleased. That means I choose you. You can claim somebody, and you can say, I'll never walk away from my love. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you like that person. You, do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? I love you. I claim you. I just don't really like to hang out with you too much. Uh, this happens on the basketball court all the time. All right? So maybe you've been on a playground somewhere or a basketball court or some kind of court, something, whatever, where teams are being chosen. I've seen this played out my entire life. So you've got two guys, maybe they're brothers or they're really good friends, and it's like it's time to choose teams. And so, you know, the, the one guy who's really got the talent, whatever, he's choosing teams, and he goes to choose, and his brother or his friend doesn't quite have talent that matches up. He's like, hey, brother, man, I, I love you, baby. You're mine. You're always mine, but you're not on my team. I'm going to have to choose somebody else. And then I've seen it happen another way. I've seen it happen this way. I've seen where a guy will say, first pick, you're it. Win or lose, I win or lose with you. That's what the father is saying win or lose i win or lose with you you're my son you're my daughter i love you and i will win or i will lose with you why do we have this story you know why and we will end every single baptism from now on at grace community church this way after somebody's baptized god speaks to us we have this story because god wants to speak to every single one of us here and some of you, your father has abandoned you. And some of you, your father has not spent time with you. But you have a deep wound and you need to do this. We're going to do baptism this way here. We're going to have one in a few weeks. We will speak, you are my son or you are my daughter. I love you and I am well pleased with you. Those are the words that God wants each one of us to hear. And it's why we have it in the Bible. And listen. Jesus Christ, he has that affirmation spoken over him. And he gets up, he goes into the desert where he is viciously attempted, uh, tempted by Satan. And he withstands the temptation. He withstands the temptation. Is it any coincidence that he is given that affirmation and is able to withstand? The book of Proverbs says, when somebody lacks self-control, they're like a city without walls. They can't defend themselves can't defend themselves. And for so many of us, we haven't had that affirmation from our biological parent. And we're like a city without walls. And we just can't stop going there in our minds or going there to whatever that dark place is that hurt or that we can't stop it. You might not ever get that affirmation from your, from your father here, your biological father here on earth. And the heavenly father wants you to know this. He gives you that affirmation. 
You have that affirmation today. You are his son. You are his daughter. He loves you. That's not going to change. And win or lose, you will do it with him by your side. That's the message of the gospel of Mark. It's a radical new purpose. Why can you believe? Because God's word is historical facts. Historical facts. Because it's brilliant and consistent. And because God claims you, loves you, and chooses you for his own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, I just want to pray this really simply. Would you speak to every heart here today of your claim, your love, and your choosing? Let it echo and ring your voice in our hearts today in a mighty, mighty way for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're not going to have a closing song. We'll play some music over the, uh, over the system here. Our prayer team is going to be over there. I just can't encourage you enough that you need somebody to pray with you, and all of us do. Take a few moments and pray with them. God bless you. Thank you for coming. We'll continue Mark next week.